right, Doxa, how you doing? Good morning, good morning. Hey, my name is Jared. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to get a chance to meet you. Uh, after the message, please find me. I'd love to get your name here to know uh, a couple things about you, and I'd like to tell you some things about myself as well. Hey, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in those, so you can grab those, pull those out. Uh, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Uh, I'm going to take us through verses 32 through 52. Uh, and if you've been coming here for the last several weeks, last several months, this is what we've been doing. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we've been going chapter by chapter, kind of just taking apart this book and seeing what God has to say to us uh, throughout this text. And so I trust you guys are going to meet me there. But as you guys are doing that, <clears throat> uh, I, I want to bring something to your attention. See, when I was young, I, I often heard this phrase, don't let your mouth write a check that you can't cash. Has anybody ever heard this phrase before? Right, like, 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 don't let your mouth write a check that you can't cash. And there's, there's other variations of this phrase, too. Maybe you've heard it more like, right, don't let your mouth write a check that your behind can't cash, right? Like, can I say behind in church? That's the PG version, right? But there's, there's other versions of this, of this saying. But the idea is this, that you wouldn't commit to or ask something or ask for something that you weren't quite ready to handle, right? You weren't really equipped for it. Don't let your mouth write a check that you can't cash. So let me take you back a little bit. Young me, right, I grew up in Kansas City, and I grew up in this neighborhood, and, you know, I was one of the younger kids on the block, but I would always challenge all the older and bigger kids to, like, different challenges. And, and one was, like, a foot race, right? I'd be like, hey, I'll, I'll race you guys up the hill, like, I, I know I'm younger, I know I'm not as strong, but I, I bet I can beat you now, right? But then they would look at me, like, kind of side-eye, like, man, man watch out. Don't, don't let your mouth write a check <laughs> that you can't cash, right? And I, and I remember distinctively, as a, a young teenager, 14, 15 years old, um, I was talking to my mom, and I had this curfew, right? My curfew was at 9 o'clock. Are parents even doing curfews anymore with their kids? Yes? Okay. Like, I had this curfew, 9 o'clock. And I was coming to her asking her, man, can I extend my curfew to 10 o'clock? You see, the thing was, like, I was always consistent late to my 9 o'clock curfew. <laughs> and I think, thought in my mind, like, hey, if, if we just extended the curfew another hour, then I wouldn't be late anymore, right? But, but, but she knew something that I didn't know, that if we just moved it to 10, then I'd be late for the 10 o'clock curfew <laughs> as well, right? And, and she looked at me and said, boy, don't let your mouth write a check that your behind can't, can't handle right? And so like you hear these, these stories, and, and maybe you used to be young like this, young and ambitious, and you had this in your heart, or, or maybe you still have this ambitious heart in you now, but what's true of people like us? See, we're not really trying to be outlandish when we're making these claims, right? Like we actually think that we can do this there's something in us deep down that makes us convinced that we can actually do the things that we say. And so we write the check, whatever it costs, whether we're good for it or not. And so in this morning's text, we're going to see something similar, right, that's kind of like that. In verse 32, we're going to come in, and at the beginning of our passage, we'll see Jesus foretell his death for the third and final time. 
And then after that, we're going to see two groups of people, namely the disciples are going to be one group, and then this guy named Bartimaeus is going to be the other. They're, they're, they're two different stories that we're going to be looking at, but they both come up to Jesus. And essentially, I want us to know this, right? When they come to Jesus, they have this proverbial check in their hand. And they want to cash this check with Jesus. See, the, the disciples will come to Jesus and they want to cash a check for glory. But Bartimaeus comes to Jesus and he wants to cash a check for mercy. And so here's what I want to do. I, I, I want to come through the text for us this morning. I'm going to point out a couple things to you and then ultimately show us like which check Jesus is eager to cash and which check he is not. I'm going to begin reading here in verse 32. You guys should be there with me. And here's what it says. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So if you guys have been following through the text, throughout Mark, right, this isn't the first time that Jesus is foretelling his death. This is the third time that he is doing it. See, the first time that Jesus foretells his death, we see this account, right, in Mark. And, and it's Simon Peter who comes to him and he basically rebukes Jesus for saying that this is what's going to be having to happen to him. That he was going to have to go to Jerusalem and he was going to have to die on a cross, right? And then it goes through and, and, and Peter gets rebuked. Jesus says, yo, get behind me, Satan. Something that you don't ever want Jesus to say to you, right? And then the second account, it, it kind of highlights the disciples' amazement. They, they kind of fear about Jesus, like not really understanding, but this fear growing in them, thinking like, man, why, why is he saying that? Like, why is he have to die? And then here in our third account, there's still fear, but there's something else welling up too. And this is actually the most detailed account that we get of Jesus's death, or the foretelling of it. Right, Jesus details that he'll have to go to Jerusalem and he'll be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. He will be condemned to death. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked. He will be spat on. He will be flogged and he will be killed. But as custom, what else do we know when Jesus foretells his death? He never talks about his suffering without talking about his glory. It says that not only will he be killed, but it says that he will also rise. So look further on in the text. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> okay, now, I don't know, if you would put yourself in the disciples' position, like maybe you wouldn't have this be the first thing that comes to your mind after you're hearing Jesus, like, foretell his death, Right? Like, th this is the, the core group. There's Peter, James, and John. All three of them have been hanging out. Peter, yeah, may maybe he would say something like this, but it seems like he's rubbing off on the other two. They come to Jesus, and the first thing they do after he's having this moment of telling them about what's coming for them, they pretty much say, hey, Jesus, could you do us a favor? <laughs> 
And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus is kind. And they said to him, hey, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. Or you could read this, can we have the seats of favor? Can we sit in the VIP section when your kingdom comes? So they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, Whatever we ask, could you do that? And I think it's really ironic because the very next thing that they say isn't even a question. They proceed with a demand. Jesus, do whatever we want that we ask, and they don't ask a question. They say, hey, give me and John the right and the left hand. You see, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, there's this idea that keeps popping up, this thing. And it's this theme that tells us that like, like, like we can come to Jesus and we can come to Jesus with all the things that we have. Like we ne- actually need to be dependent on him. But every time dependency is talked about, right, it's talked about in this way that we come to Jesus as a child. We are dependent on him. And how many of you know that when a child comes to you with a question, you know, it better be a question, <laughs> right? Like just this morning, I told this story to, to first service, and, you know, I'm at the house. I'm getting ready to come over here to the church. My wife is cooking breakfast. Uh, my youngest daughter, Maya, she's uh, four years old. She asked my wife, hey, can, can I have pancakes for breakfast? And it's like, yeah, baby, you can have pancakes for breakfast. It wasn't one, two minutes later, I hear her screaming from the living room, mom, get me my pancakes. And so I'm on my way out the door, and I hit this little 180 you know, turn. And I'm thinking, hey, babe, like you can't speak to your mom like that. Like you can ask for whatever you want. You can have <laughs> whatever you want. You can for sure have some pancakes, but you have to ask the question. See, James and John came to Jesus like a magic genie, asking for whatever they want, demanding whatever they wanted. They had this misconstrued idea of what it meant to come to Jesus like a child. But make no mistake, we are invited to do so. But here's what Jesus responds to him. Here's what he says. He says in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking for. When they come to Jesus and they ask him to sit at his right and left hand in his glory, in his kingdom, he's saying, listen, you don't even know what you're asking. In other words, don't let your mouth write a check that you can't cash. And he goes on to say, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You see, in the scriptures, this idea of cup is usually used in two different ways. One way it can be used is like this cup of blessing. Right? You can drink the cup and it's this cup of blessing. And, and another way you can use the cup and it's this cup of wrath. And this is obviously the way that Jesus is talking about this cup here. And the baptism he's talking about isn't like the baptism that Rob was just talking about up here in the announcements, right? Not like this getting dumped into the water as you, as you proclaim what's already an internal reality in you. But no, he's talking about this baptism that Jesus would have to go through. That was a very real baptism, not of water, but of death. And he asked them, 
would you be able to drink this cup of wrath and would you be able to be baptized with this baptism in which I am about to walk in? And I love the answer in verse 39. The disciples said, we are able. <laughs> They're lying, guys. <laughs> They're not able. And neither are we. But I love the ambition. I can relate, right? But you know how it is. Like when you have this, 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 this job application and you really want to get this job and you see the job application come up, and you're looking at it, and the job application says, yo, you need three to five years of experience to work in this job. You need to be proficient in Excel, and you need to be really good with people, right, to be in this job. And you look at that job description, you're like, three to five, I don't really have that, but I'm going to sign up anyway, right? Excel, uh, I haven't really done that since, like, college, but, but hey, maybe I could pick it up on the fly, right? And, and you know good or well that you don't really like being around people anyway, <laughs> Like for you to be around people, maybe 15 minutes is your cap, and then you got to bounce out to get your little quiet time, right? Like, but you're looking at this job application, and you're thinking, I want this job really bad. And I say, I'm able. That's a lie. <laughs> Just like the disciples here are lying. They said, we are able. And Jesus says to them, look at this. He says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Y'all, they didn't know what they were getting signed up for. But as I was studying this text, I wanted to look at, you know, did the disciples really have to drink the cup? Did they really walk in the baptism that Jesus was talking about that they would have to walk in? So I was looking in these extra biblical texts trying to figure out what actually happened to the disciples. And I want to tell us from top to bottom what happened to the 12. Listen to this, James, one of the characters that we have right here in this text, he would be the first disciple to experience this thing, what Jesus is talking about. He was beheaded on the account of Jesus. And then Matthias, you guys remember Matthias? He was the disciple that we see in Acts, right? He's nowhere in the Gospels. He's in the book of Acts. And he's the one that gets instituted in because Judas was tripping, right? He didn't want to do his job. And Matthias, the poor disciple who got instituted in, he was stoned and beheaded. Jude, Simon, Peter, Andrew, all crucified. Bartholomew whipped to death. Matthew and Thomas speared to death. The other James was thrown off of a cliff. And he survived being thrown off the cliff. And so they clubbed him to death. And Philip, he was hung by iron hooks. And then John, the other character that we have in this text, James and John bookend. You see, John would say in his writings that he is the beloved disciple of Jesus. Maybe he is. There might be some truth to that. Because his story is that he died in exile on the island of Patmos likely due to natural causes, but he is the only one. Did the disciples have to drink the cup? Yep. Did they have to walk in the baptism? Yep. And as James and John was having this conversation with Jesus, 
the other ten were gathered around and they could see or they could hear uh, this conversation happening. When they heard it, look at verse 41. It says, they began to be indignant at James and John. Rightly so. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But, who for, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to not give his life or, and to give his life, excuse me, as a ransom for many. He's looking at his disciples. He's saying, listen, your cry for glory, your cry to want to sit at my right and left hand, it is misconstrued. Like you have one idea of what it means to be an authority. You have one idea of what it means to be uh, a leader, a ruler. And it's from what you see in the Roman Empire. And I'm here to tell you that my kingdom is not like that. And yet this is what you have in mind. To be great in the kingdoms of the world is to rule, but to be great in my kingdom is to serve. See, Jesus wants his disciples to know that this kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. It's different, and the currency is not power, but it's service. So they continue their journey. Look at verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho, quick turnaround with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Listen, I love how Mark does these texts. He, he puts these two and he juxtaposes them against one another. All right, we come to the story of the disciples coming to ask Jesus for glory, and now we see something entirely different with this blind beggar on the side of Jericho who asked Jesus for something entirely different. He sees Jesus and he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. As I was reading this text, like, I had a couple questions. Right, I, I was wondering, how did this blind beggar on the side of the road in Jericho, having any idea who Jesus was. See, we don't really know, but it's likely that he had heard about Jesus's ministry. See, word about Jesus's ministry had been traveling around and it could have possibly gotten down to Jericho and maybe he heard these stories about this traveling teacher who had gone to many places and he was teaching this powerful, powerful truth and he was touching many people who were lame, deaf, and blind and they were being healed and he heard this story and it did something in his heart and it welled up into him. Or like maybe he thought of the prophecy in Isaiah 35 verse 5 that says this, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Or maybe he had heard word of one of Jesus' first sermons that's recorded in the, in, the, in the book of Luke. In chapter 4, verse 18, when he quotes the prophecy of Isaiah 61, where he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he was sent to me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Likely he had heard these things. 
and likely they were hitting his ear, right? The, the, the account in the Gospel of Luke says that uh, the blind beggar was sitting on the side of the road and, and he heard this commotion. He heard this crowd of people and he leaned over and said, Yo, who, like, why is, who, what is all this noise? Who is this? And someone leaned over to him and said, hey, like Jesus of Nazareth is here. And it clicked for him. The things that he had heard, right? The idea of salvation welled up in his soul and it provoked him to go towards Jesus. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So he's a testament to us all. And I think there's three things that we can see about Bartimaeus that we can emulate in our lives as well. Number one is this, that he shows a reverence towards Jesus. He hears Jesus, and the thing that he says is, Son of David, have mercy. Now, the name Son of David only appears two times in the book of Mark. One time by Jesus himself, and the second time is right here by this blind man, Bartimaeus. And it's this title of royalty. It's this title of messiahship. The Old Testament tells us that the Messiah will come through the line of David. And that he will reign as a type of king like him, but not a king on this earth, but a king of eternity. He had reverence in front of Jesus. And secondly, he had humility. The thing that he is crying for is just opposed to what the disciples were crying for. The disciples cried for glory, but here we see Bartimaeus crying for mercy. You see, there's this concept of mercy that we have, but I think we often get it confused with forgiveness. But for today's purpose, like mercy is not forgiveness. <laughs> you see, mercy is when someone is in position to actually hurt you, but they help you instead. And like this is a radical thing that Bartimaeus comes uh, to agreement with, right? This means that he became aware of something about himself that went beyond the surface of his life, which was that he needed more than a miracle that would heal his body. What he needed was a miracle that would heal his soul. Bartimaeus shows reverence to Jesus. He shows humility in front of Jesus. And lastly, he shows desperation in front of Jesus. In verse 48, it tells us that the crowd had rebuked him from being loud. And what happened after the crowd rebuked him? Did he be quiet? No, he got even louder. Like how many of us in this room have people in our lives who when we come around talking about Jesus and recounting the good things that he's done in, his in, in your life and the things that you've seen him do in other people's lives, and they tell you to pipe down. And how much more do you cry out the name Jesus? As we go on in the text, Jesus actually stops with him and the crowd, and he tells the crowd to call Bartimaeus to himself. And so they called the blind man and they said to him, you'll have courage, get up, Jesus is calling for you. Which is crazy because they were just saying, shut up, <laughs> don't say anything, Jesus isn't here for you. It's just like the crowd to do something like that, right? So Bartimaeus throws off his coat, he jumps up and he comes to Jesus. And then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? He says, Rabbani, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, then go. Your
your faith has saved you. And immediately he could see. And he began to follow Jesus on the road. Y'all, I love this story of Bartimaeus. I love that the scripture puts people like this in this story. I want to tell you guys something, right? Like as I was studying this text, I was actually convicted as I was preparing for this message, right? I was talking to someone a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about the last couple chapters that we've been talking through in the, in the, in the book of Mark. And we were recounting all the times that Jesus had uh, been with disabled people. Right? And we wrestled with this reality that like, we don't readily talk about this cohort of people. And as I was studying this text and I was looking at blind Bartimaeus, I recognized that like, I had this, like, like, th- this natural thing, I think, as I imagine myself being an able-bodied person and the privilege that comes with it. And what I recognize is that I have this underlying belief that it's actually better to be an able-bodied person been a disabled person as if I chose my able body and other people choose their disabled bodies. Like how many of us forget? See, James and John didn't choose to see any more than than Bartimaeus chose not to see. And yet he's the one that gets pushed to the margin. And I love this because Jesus comes in and he levels the playing field and he says, listen, it doesn't matter if you can literally see or not. Like it doesn't matter if you can tell the difference between green and blue. What matters is if you can recognize me and what I came to do. So what matters is if you can see your own dependence. What matters is if you can see your own need for mercy. See, To the disciples' question about glory, Jesus kind of gives them the runaround. He says, you don't know what you're asking. It's not really my spot to give you. You don't know what you're asking for. In other words, don't let your mouth write a check that you can't cash. But when it comes to the question about mercy, when Bartimaeus comes to him in his humility and he asks Jesus to have mercy on him, Jesus says, it's yours now. It's immediate. And this is the difference. The disciples cried out for glory and they got crickets, but Bartimaeus cried out for mercy and he got glory. And here's our main point for this morning, y'all. I think this encapsulates the, the text to this point thus far. And it's this, that true glory comes from receiving God's mercy. See, true glory comes from receiving God's mercy. And what I want to do for the rest of the message is kind of attack these two questions, one from James and John and one from Bartimaeus. And I I, I want to show us something here. Like as we look at the question from James and John, James and John, remember, they approach Jesus in their pride and they ask for glory. But Bartimaeus approaches Jesus in his humility and he asks for mercy. And so what we should do is see two things about true glory. The first thing is this, that true glory is opposed to pride. And the second thing is this, that true glory is receptive to humility. First, true glory is opposed to pride. Look back at verse 42 with me. It says that Jesus called them over and said to them, the disciples as a whole, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. See, he's coming at this idea 
that what the disciples were looking for in glory, they were really searching for in pride. See, he's saying here is you're trying to take your cue of leadership and your cue of authority from the world instead of my kingdom. Like how many of us do the same thing, right? Like he's saying, you're seeing how the Romans lead and you see their power, you see the respect they demand, you see their overbearing authority, and instead of your thought being, man, that's wrong, and I want to model kingdom values, your thought is, man, that would be nice to have that position. Like you look at the way that the kingdoms are ran in the world and you think, man, that would be nice. And I would do the same if I was in that position. Because I was preparing for this message, I was thinking about this song. Uh, it's a hip-hop song, uh, rap song from the 90s. And, like, I'm a hip-hop head, okay, full disclosure. So, like, this is just in my pocket right now. So y'all get ready for a minute, okay? Um, but there's this artist named The Locks, right? And The Locks was a hip-hop artist. He was, like, one of the ones on top back in the day, right? And he was one with, with one, of the, one of the illest flows, right, of the time. And he has this song that's called Money, Power, and Respect, it's the name of an album. It's the title uh, song on the album. And he has these lyrics in it, and it goes like this. He says, what's the key to life? Money, power, respect. What you need in life? Money, power, respect. You'll be eating right. Money, power, respect. What you, can, you can't sleep at night. Hey, money, power, respect. Right? Like, there's maybe a couple of y'all who knew what I was talking about in that moment. <laughs> But listen, here's the thing. If the disciples had an Alexa, like this would probably be their jam on repeat. They're desiring this reality to be in this kingdom, to rule in this kingdom where they have what they see other kingdoms have, and this money, power, and respect. And here's what we have to know. Whether we like rap music or not, if our hearts are not keenly tuned to the heart of Jesus, we'll desire the same thing. See, but Jesus reminds his disciples in verse 43, look at this. But it is not so among you. Like on the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. See, Jesus is saying to the world, here's what leadership looks like. It's about ruling and it's about seeking authority. But in my kingdom, leadership is not about that. It's about serving. And if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be in my kingdom, leadership actually looks like laying down your life. There's a consistent theme we've seen in these last couple chapters of Mark. In the last few weeks, we've heard Jesus emphasize two important realities. One of them is this, that many who are last will be first. And the second is this, if you want to be great, then serve. And a few weeks ago, I mentioned that Jesus isn't really coming against this idea of greatness Right, guys, remember that story. The disciples are talking to Jesus, wondering who's the greatest of them all, right? And he says something to them, but he's not really coming against greatness as we know it. What's he doing? He's redefining what greatness means. You see, the God that we read about and that we have access to through Jesus is the God of glory. And he even tells his disciples that he will, they will reign with him in power. Like in this account in the Gospel of Matthew, right before they start talking about this right here, he tells them that, hey, you guys will be reigning with me on 12 thrones in the kingdom of God. And maybe that even explains some things, right? Like maybe the disciples are getting mixed signals. 
And maybe this is why we feel this tension of glory and mercy even in our own lives. But here's what we need to know. The holistic message of Jesus is trying to tell us that glory is ours, but it is not ours to attain. Listen, we can't achieve glory. If we could achieve glory, it would lead to pride. And it would, if we achieve pride, then it would lead to us boasting. Listen, glory is ours, but it's not ours to attain. It's ours to receive. And we receive glory in our humility when we receive Christ. See, true glory is opposed to pride. But secondly, true glory is receptive to humility. And this is what we see in the story of blind Bartimaeus. You see, Bartimaeus was in every sense of the word, like the opposite of what we think about when we think about glory. Like Bartimaeus was a blind man. He was outcasted. He was sitting on the roadside of Jericho. He was completely reliant on everyone else around him. And even his name, like the name you see in the text, Bartimaeus, this isn't even this man's name. You see, when you break down the name Bartimaeus, the first syllable bar in this text is not a name, it's a title. It means son of. Bartimaeus is son of Timaeus. This dude that we're reading about in the text was blind. He was an outcast. He was completely helpless. And he was a no-name dude that Mark describes for us in this text. And here's what's crazy, like Bartimaeus was aware of this. He was aware of his place in life and what he does is remarkable. He takes this sober look at things and he takes a sober look at his life and what he does is he humbles himself when he sees Jesus, wow, and he chooses hope and cashes in on mercy. And y'all, I think this is important because I think Bartimaeus had another option. Instead of choosing hope, he could have chosen despair. There's this French philosopher, French French Christian philosopher, Blaise Pascal, and he has this quote. He says, knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. But knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. But knowing Jesus Christ, it strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our own wretchedness. Listen, the path of pride and the path of despair are both wide. And what do they do? They lead to destruction. But what Bartimaeus shows is that the path of Jesus is narrow. It closes in on both sides. There's no room for pride and there's no room for despair. And it doesn't allow for boasting in ourselves and it doesn't allow for self-pity. But it does allow for what the late Tim Keller calls this, self-forgetfulness. And self-forgetfulness is the freedom that we have in Christ to do away with the weight of glory that we put on ourselves and the weight of glory that others put on us. Listen, pride and self-pity are the result of just too much pressure, both internal and external. And what Bartimaeus shows us is that we can be free from that in Jesus. So I have a question for us. What have you been trying to cash in with God lately? Have you been asking for glory? Or have you been asking for mercy? 
Like, have you been asking for glory? Have, have you been seeking God in a way where you're bargaining with him for your own elevation, whether secular or spiritual? Like, is your primary mode of communicating with God? You go to God and you say, God, hey, can I have this? Can I have that? Can you give me this? Can you give me that? Can I have glory? Can I have this? God, give me. Do you come to God with your hand out demanding things from him in pride? Or do you come to him asking for mercy? Listen, if we seek glory, a few things will be true of us. You will take advantage of the presence of Jesus. You will run at the first sign of discomfort. You will have a distorted view of following Jesus. You will be seeking pleasure over obedience. You will be full of pride instead of humility. But if we seek mercy, you will have reverence in the presence of Jesus. You will develop a sense of long-suffering. You will have a sober view of what it means to follow Jesus, and you will follow Jesus wherever he goes and wherever he calls you, and you will be full of humility instead of pride. So I ask you, what are you coming to ask God for? What is your consistent rhythm? Are you coming to God asking him for glory? Or do you come to God asking him for mercy? If we come to God asking for pride or for glory, we're walking in pride. If we come to God asking for mercy, we walk in humility. I want to say this fact about glory as well. I want to make this little caveat. Listen, part of the good news for Christians is that glory is the end game. My Christian, you will be in heaven with Jesus at the end of your days. This is what is true. The kingdom of God is real. Jesus is a real king. He has something for us to be a part of, and this thing is namely glory. But let me tell you something. The pursuit of glory for the sake of glory is empty and it will lead to death. But the pursuit of glory by way of faith and following our suffering Savior will lead to life. Church, the desire of our hearts and the words on our lips should overwhelmingly be mercy, not glory. Why? Because true glory comes from receiving God's mercy. So as a point of application, there's, there's a, a couple things I want us to take from this doxa. I want us to be people of prayer. I want us to be people that repent. And I want to be people that acknowledge. First, I want to be people of prayer. Right? Doxa, I, I want us to pray. And the thing that I want us to pray about is that God would show us in our lives, and that God will show us in our hearts the things that we are desiring and the things that we have our hands on that, that, that keep us harboring and isolating ourselves and drawing us closer to seek our own glory. The things that we do in our lives and the things that we have in our minds that we think, man, if this happens, man, I would, I would have gotten somewhere. <laughs> if this wasn't in my life, then I would be empty. I want you to pray. And I want you to ask God to show you these things so that he can reveal them to you. And, and after being people of prayer, I want us being a people who repent. We say, God, I want you to turn me away from those things. 
God, I want you to realign my life. Will you help me rightly order my loves? Listen, y'all, the, the, the things that God gives us in this life, he is the master of all creation. But so often we will take the created things that God made, these good things, and we'll turn them into God things. And what we do is disorder our lives. And before we know it, we have dethroned God as king. And what repentance does is it helps us realign and it helps us rightly order. We pray so that God can show us and then we repent so that we can turn. And then lastly, I want to be people who acknowledge that God alone is the giver of all things good and that true glory can only be experienced through him. Could you imagine what that would actually be like? Like, how would your world change if you took these steps? How would your world change if you begin to pray and God began to unveil some things and you began to repent of those things and you began to acknowledge that true glory comes from God alone? Like, how would that change your world personally? How would that change how you interact in your household? How would that change how you interact among your spouse? How would that change how you interact in your job space, in your workspace? Yo, how would it change this church? What if we collectively decided that doxa, that we want to be people of prayer and that we want to be people who practice repentance and we acknowledge that the good things of this life come from God alone and we can rightly order our lives to be sure that Jesus is king. But what if we did this? It's only when we release our prideful grit from the things of this world that we can receive in humility the gifts that Christ has to offer. And I want to tell you this right now. If you are not a believer in this room, the greatest gift that you can receive from God right now is your salvation. Like this is the way that you can begin to follow Jesus. And this is the way that you can begin to have Jesus be the king over your life. If you become a person of prayer and you say to God, yo, I am a sinner. I'm sorry for what I've done. God, I am evil and you are good. I am wrong and you are righteous. Would you please take my sin from me and bestow on me your righteousness? That can be yours today. And for the Christians in the room, I want to remind you of the gift that Jesus is offering you right now in its freedom. Listen, I know as a fallen Christian trying to walk this path of Jesus that it is easy to get your life out of order, that it is easy to dethrone God in your life as king. So many things are at war in this life and they are vouching for the throne of your heart. And it's a fight. <laughs> to keep Jesus there. But we have to know, Christian, that we have the freedom in realizing that this is a good fight. Do you remember when you first placed your faith in Jesus Christ and the number one thing that you felt was freedom? You were free from the things that chained you. You weren't running after those anymore. Like, you, you didn't desire them anymore. Do you remember that freedom that Christ gave you from day one? Listen, that freedom is still yours today. That freedom is yours, and we need to remind ourselves of this. Listen, the scriptures is riddled 
with people who often forgot the goodness of God in their lives. And they consistently dethroned him as king in their lives. And they pursued other things. Listen, none of us in this room are different. There are no perfect people in the scriptures and there's no perfect people in this season. We need to be reminded that we have this freedom that we can cling to Jesus and not cling to this life. Listen, I know that this is a discomfort. It is hard to dethrone yourself from your life. It is hard to deny our lust for glory. But listen, if we deny our lust for glory and recognizing our need for mercy is only temporary, we will understand that it's more than worth the glory that we will receive in Jesus. Let me pray that this be true of us today, Doxa. Jesus, we love you. Father, we're grateful for you. We're grateful for your son. Father, I'm thankful that you sent your son and he left heaven, he left everything to come here to put on flesh. He was in a position of authority. He was in a position to rule, and yet he gave it all up so that he can come here to live for us and to die for us so that we too don't have to cling to glory. We can actually cling to mercy, and we can cling to you. And Father, I want you to remind us this morning that we are children of yours and that we don't have to pursue glory. We don't have to give into our pride. We don't have to desire the things and, and, and white knuckle our way through life. But we can actually pursue a state of humility. And we can bring ourselves to you and we can cry out mercy instead of crying glory. Father, we know that ultimately you give glory. It's where you want us and would you work it in our hearts to believe that only true glory comes from receiving your mercy, God. In your son's name we pray this.